Welcome to the Focus Forward Business Podcast from SturdyMcKee.com. Hi, this is Sturdy McKee, and thank you for tuning in. Today we've got John Wolf on the program. John is from PatientSuccessSystems.com. He's currently working on his PhD in performance psychology. John's a physical therapist with experience both at the university athletic level as well as private practice and growing a a business from one to nine clinics with 150 employees. He's now moving on to his next chapter in his journey, which really involves a lot around communication and creating uh, systems and processes for organizations to improve their communication and really live up and and exemplify their core values. I had a great time talking with John and hearing his insights. It's incredibly thought-provoking. Very excited to share this with you, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, thank you for joining us today for an interview with John Wolf. We're going to dive into two main things today. Um, first, some of John's very cool ideas, and also a bit about his entrepreneurial journey along the way. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with John. John has a wealth of knowledge in communications and creating systems to support this in your business. John is working on his PhD currently in performance psychology, and you can reach John via his website at patientsuccesssystems.com and or his email at johnw at patientsuccesssystems.com. So I'm really excited to talk with you today, John, and uh, thank you very, very much for taking the time to be with us. It is great to be with you, Sturdy. Appreciate it. Thank you. So first, let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey a little bit and, and maybe some lessons that you've learned. Uh, how did you get started, and where would you describe yourself now on that journey? Yeah, that is a good question. And entrepreneurial journey, I think, you know, I'd have to – this is going to be a little weird for your listeners, but I think I can remember back in high school – they had this program called like Young Business Leaders or something. And I remember that I signed up as part of this like uh, club and created a small business where we made koozies for beer cans. Yeah, I kid you not. So we made prototypes <laughs> and we were using that. Yeah, <laughs> and we were using that as kind of a way to start to learn how to like run a business. And so I guess I have to say I started pretty darn early thinking this idea that I wanted to help. I, I wanted to grow something. I mean, I wanted to make something, create it. And at some point, you know, uh, I, I somehow had to learn that it was also important to make money. But I have to say that the entrepreneurial journey is one, it usually starts with some desire to be creative or to create something in the world, hopefully it has value for other people. Cool. But then I, I uh, yeah, then I head off into into the rest of life, right? I go to I go to college, and I, I was pretty set on being a physical therapist because I was passionate about how the body works. And I'll tell people pretty straight up, even my patients still uh, today, that you know I did not get into the physical therapy profession to help people. I got into the physical therapy profession because I was fascinated about how the body works. So my passion is how this thing works, and I think what people, my patients notice is that uh, they sense the passion about solving problems and learning how the musculoskeletal system works and 
how the and the muscle activation patterns and and that led me after undergraduate school to go back to graduate school and get a, a master's degree in in biomechanics and motor control so that I could study exactly how we start processing psychomotor processes and somatosensory processes. So that is a uh, in at some point because of the um, because of this learning, I think I just kept on a process of being curious. Um, I worked for the University of Arizona for, uh, for about nine years and, and ran the sports medicine program there for a while, which was a brilliant learning experience because not only working with elite athletes, but also working with, with top-level orthopedic surgeons and, and other providers in a team environment to, to get results. And those results there are pretty high-staked results. In other words, it's pretty uh-huh. pretty evident when when people are getting better and when they're not. And also I had to work, got the opportunity to work with some really extraordinary coaches um, because each of the coaches at that university, at least at the time, really had a unique approach to getting results from their players. And, and some of them had obvious results on the court, like a Lute Olsen, and uh, then there were others that didn't have. But but at the same time, uh, I learned so much about exactly what it means to be a coach and how to bring a team around a common goal. Um, but, you know, after, again, after working in, uh, working for a state university for a while, it was like in a private practice. And that was probably the steepest learning curve of all. You, how so? Leaving, well, you you know you leave this idea of getting a paycheck uh, every every two weeks because you're doing something specific for somebody else to all of a sudden um, climbing into an environment where you're creating a paycheck and the you know the learning in that is that you learn quickly about what you don't know. Yes, Yes, I think every business owner can relate to that. (laughs) Suddenly there's a bunch of stuff I didn't know I didn't know. Yeah, exactly. And and uh and and then I kept I kept wondering, well, how is it that I'm going to be able to overcome the mistakes that I'm making every single day in order to keep this thing going? And I had the good fortune because the practice was already kind of established, so I kind of climbed in and um, and having told the story before, I'm mindful of the fact that I have a, you know, some unique gifts. And I think all of our listeners and, and the clients study that you work with and, and you yourself and your team have a unique or I would say a, uh, a strength, a strength of seeing, um, of seeing the situation in a unique way. And I, mine was about systems development, um, which is building feedback systems that enable people to make good decisions. So I I only found myself really getting in trouble when I made assumptions of things that I didn't check on. And I think when when we make assumptions without validating the assumptions, we we our our opportunity for mistakes, I could say it this way, our opportunity for learning intensifies. Which you know, if we if we keep realizing that mistakes are learning processes. However, after a while, um, 
it just made more sense to really understand that if you want to know what works and what doesn't work, you know, set up a, an environment to where you can measure it. And uh -huh. I eventually got really good at that. So built built the business from one clinic to nine clinics and uh, a little over 150 employees through organic growth, uh, acquisitions, and really had a had a have a great run at it. I mean it's a it's a solid business in a in a relatively competitive market. And uh recently did a majority interest sale and there was a specific purpose for that. I knew that my journey, if you will, was needed to evolve into something different. And having having spent twenty years building a business it was time to start saying, well, what am I going to do with the next chapter? And there were a lot of learnings, as I said, that that uh, you, your listeners, I have done in the process of either running or building a business. And what I wanted to do was a deeper dive into how did we do what we did well and how can we describe it? In other words, how does anyone create a language for what we're doing well and or what we're not doing well, recognize it, and then begin to create a process for making it better? And my uh, journey was not just about the physical therapy business, per se, which I thought was very important, but I'm I'm still a clinician, and I'm, you know, I still see patients, and and I, I think that's a really important part of being able to make a contribution to the business is still keeping your hands in it. And I keep thinking, man, I don't know about you, but if we can get better outcomes, sturdy, if we can, as physical therapists, get better outcomes, we, as a as a profession, are going to have a better shot at truly contributing to this rapidly evolving healthcare system. And I don't think I'm the only one standing up on as tall of a ladder as possible screaming out that we probably, we do offer the best value proposition in healthcare right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, the, the, the challenge is getting people to understand that and communicating it effectively. Got it, got it. And so there yeah. I think there are people, and there's some great people right now, as you know, in the profession who are swinging away at the in, in the in the major political arena, and there are those who are who are out there doing some significant research, you know, uh, large-scale research around the the outcomes, what makes an outcome, how we save costs. That's all brilliant stuff, and and my contribution is. Is uh, is stemmed from my ongoing curiosity, uh, as I said earlier, my curiosity about how this how this works, how exactly does somebody get actually get better? Like, what is healing? Like, what happens between a physical therapist and a patient, or a, a, a medical doctor and a patient? What is it about that that physician or provider? patient relationship that inspires a really good outcome. And that for me is is a passion 
that I want to I want to research at a deep level. I want to report on it. I want to teach it. Um, and I'm teaching what I know on that already, but but my curiosity is now starting to get down into deep research. There is another there is another thing that that bolsters me up is that I also um, co-direct an education company, a continuing education company called okay. the International Academy of Orthopedic Medicine. So that is the IAOM-US.com. And really, we're a group of, of clinicians and, and academics in rehabilitation sciences that are teaching continuing education. And cool. do you remember, cool. Sturdy, probably back in the uh, – do you remember back in the 90s or the 80s when, when we were all trying to do multi-centered outcome research studies where we were wondering if this technique was going to be better than that technique or – um, we were really technique focused. Yeah, and uh, before the internet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, a little harder. So what? Uh, oh man, yeah, a lot harder. But what we realized is that you know it's got to be uh, even then with a a group of you know musculoskeletal experts, is that you know the outcome is going to be a heck of a lot more than just the technique that we do with the patient. And right, of course. You know, we we all kind of know that, but there's not until recently has there really been any really good language around it. And then, you know, researchers like Joel Bolowski really have been the guys uh, who have been and Stephen George who are really out there proving it, you know, with a with a a research-based evidence-supported uh, narrative that says, you know what, it's probably more to an outcome than the technique that you're using. And that mm -hmm. probably makes sense to you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's the – there's more than just the intervention, right? There's the interaction and, and between the provider and, and patient. Um, I would love to come back to that in just a second, but before we do, can I ask you – um, for business owners who've kind of gotten beyond the initial startup phase, say they're at a half million dollars or so in annual revenue, given what you learned in your journey and in, in growing businesses and being involved in a couple of them now, and, and especially, you know, nine clinics, 150 employees and all that, what's the most important lesson that you would want to share with those business owners that are in, in a little bit of those earlier stages? Right. We've um, we've heard this out there, you know. There there's this concept of working on your business versus working in your business. And I think my my advice would be build systems that are accountable, clear, and executable. So build systems and processes that essentially become what the business runs on. And the very simplest example would be a feedback system uh, for for a, a culture management process, for example. In other words, define how it is that you engage with your culture. And how do you know the status of, of how the culture is doing relative to what you represent as your brand? And I think what uh, 
and that may be one that people aren't doing as much, but probably one that people are doing would be every, you know, the, the 13th of every month reviewing financials with the team of people who are accountable to financials. Cool. And so the, the process is, is just that. It's meeting, asking the important questions, getting absolute clarity so that everyone's on the same page, and then designing what the plan would be as a result of those numbers. Well, and that, what you just described is very similar to what you do in a, so for, the, so for those particularly clinical business owners, it's the same thing that you do with a, with a patient, right? You have your goals and your benchmarks, you know where you ought to be. You do an assessment, look at them against that. So your financials mm -hmm. should be benchmarked ultimately against your expense budget and your profit targets. And, and then, you know, the operational components that go into de, to creating the financial, you know, mm -hmm. revenue or not. So you can have a, a, a process there to really look at and analyze. Um, when we're setting up processes and systems, particularly with clients, I've started calling it the playbook. We're making a playbook yeah. for their organization that's broken down by you know, different categories. So marketing has its own mm -hmm. set of plays, so front desk or intake or you know, clinical staff or billing and revenue cycle. Um, all these different components of the business have d these different processes that are documented. And you and I talked earlier about like Google Docs. That's a, just mm -hmm. as, a, as a pointer, that's a great platform to use for that because then it's shareable amongst your team and others can contribute and you can start to build out that playbook in a much more rapid way. Exactly. Yeah, then you get then you get collaboration, right? And, exactly, yes. And, <laughs> yeah. And Which we're not taught thing. in school, right? No, I get it. And and this is back <laughs> to relationship-centered stuff, right? right? You know, kind of my shtick. It's like there are so many different barriers to getting a team working together around processes, but um, so I, I like how you how you framed it. You know, this idea of a playbook. It's uh, and I had a conversation with a client this morning. It's like it's like plan the work and work the plan. Mm -hmm. And and the plan is built around specific goals and objectives that should be in alignment with kind of a long term strategy, but also the personal values that that each business owner kind of holds and not only holds but builds the business around. So the, uh, the, the biggest advice I would have is, is to have that, I'm going to call it a top-down process, where you get really clear on your why, you get super clear on what's important about that, and then begin a process of determining how it is that you want to represent those that vision into the world because that that's going to be the full expression of of what a uh, a successful business is I love it awesome thank you very much yeah, for man. sharing that thank you so you're you're known uh for your expertise in, in interpersonal communications and operationalizing processes around around that too um, can you tell us a little bit about how your passion for that developed? Yeah, absolutely. You, 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 already, uh, you already kind of started, but I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you got, you know, so focused on this area. Mm -hmm. Probably for a couple, a couple different ways. Uh, one is that 
I wasn't very good at it. And the consequences I learned in very difficult ways uh, was hurting my business. Yeah. And uh, at any given time in our in our journey, right, we come upon wise sages who are capable of helping us to um, see things differently, which is is just a, the tremendous value of a good coach or a good mentor or a, a good wise person who's been out there for a while. So I remember this is fantastic. I remember um, he was a, a PhD in business over at the U of A, and he was a patient, and he says, hey, man, you ever think about maybe how this might be affecting this? And I went, no, I never thought about that. <laughs> Why would I? I goes, well, hmm. And then, I, you know, he got an earful once or twice about how difficult and how people weren't on board and how they weren't listening and my struggles with getting people to do things differently or better or harder or more. And I remember ultimately he came in, he kind of did an assessment, talked with uh, some uh, some of our employees, and he says, you know what, uh, we, if you want, I can I can kind of bridge this whole thing together, and he did, and we all sat down and ended up having a meeting where I, I looked at three, uh, one business uh, manager, uh, the front office manager, and uh, another two people, and they looked at me from across the table, and they just unleashed <laughs> on the ways that I was not how would I say, not really serving the organization. How the ways in which I was communicating was actually becoming a barrier, barrier for performance. And right. i got to tell you, man, oh, yeah, there is not a, a more humbling moment than to truly listen to what people are, are uh, willing to tell you for the good of the company. So that was a profound experience for me to have to have kind of quote messed it up close quote um, uh, well efficiently to get feedback yeah but can I call out one thing here sure man the idea that you built a culture and an environment where they felt safe enough to do that yes you were obviously doing something right there you know and, and something mm -hmm. significantly right that is not easy to do. Right. But but it only yeah, – I got that, and I, I uh, accept that it took this this uh, consultant, if you will. It took this consultant mm -hmm. to help facilitate it. In other words, people were sitting sure, there okay. for a while, and it was it was an undercurrent. So I'd, I'd love to take that. Now, since that time, since that moment, mm -hmm. I've had systems in place for that kind of a culture. But the hard learning was to have really made a mistake – in it, it was a mistake. It was learning, right? Um, sure. I, to really have learned the process for listening carefully to the people that you work with, so that um, so that they can call out ways in which um, I was getting in the way. So that that turned on a passion to say, well, businesses get better in part because people work really, really well as a team. So that's number one. Uh, the second part is, you know, do you ever walk into the clinic, sturdy and and kind of look around the room, and and you see some therapists, and even if you look at the KPIs, some of the measures, you have some therapists whose cancellation rates are like, man, it's one and a, it's like five percent, four and a half percent, and you have others in the same exact clinic who are hovering around fourteen percent, fifteen percent, and I kept going, what is the difference between these two? 
And that led me to a, a whole, ooh, ooh, tell ooh, me, I what know, do you think? I know, I know. <laughs> well, I'm kind of curious to give people a second here to think about it themselves. But, I mean, we're right back into your wheelhouse around communication. Right. And, and exactly. particularly communication not being a one-way street. Right, right, which is this is one of my pet peeves as well with people coming, mm-hmm. and I mean, and I, I say people coming out of school. I was one, you know. This was exactly the same thing I, I dealt with coming out of school. We had been taught and tested on getting the right answer, and really not taught and tested on getting the right answer for an individual with their input and a negotiation and the rest of it. So yeah, I I love this. I'm I'm gonna be quiet. And let you keep riffing on that. Yeah, I'm riffing is the right word because I kept I kept going. So I, when I, I wanted to keep scraping back the layer to figure out, well, what is it that makes one person, uh, I'll use the word better, than another person at connecting with people? And now there's an entire structure of the patient engagement. And, and I thought that's really useful, and there's people who are talking about that out there. But I wanted to go even further back to try to figure out, well, how is it that people perceive anything? You know, why does one patient perceive the situation one way and, and another is going to perceive the, uh, the situation another? And we all know this. There are patients that are more difficult than others. We'll, we'll just use it that way. And then uh, at the same time, I was wondering, well, how do some therapists see it this way and, and others see it a different way? And this concept of resiliency is, is, it keeps creeping back um, out of the literature. So that was that was one moment. So I'll, I'll pause on that for a second, and I'm going to tell more story. <clears throat> there was a uh, so I, I got done the other day, and I was probably just you know we were just two clinics big, and and uh, someone from the community called me, and uh, Beth Beth Haggerty. She was a, a licensed social worker, but she's also wanted to kind of get into the loop at the University of Arizona to perform some uh, contribute in the sports psychology area. And so she called me, I don't know, five times or so, and I just kept and said, well, I don't have time for this. Maybe on the sixth time I said, okay. She said, can I follow you around the clinic just to kind of get a sense of what you do? I said, oh, well, okay, if you want to, fine. So Beth uh, joined me probably on every Tuesday or so. She came into the clinic, and she just just basically sat on my side, you know, like someone who was shadowing me. And I'm working with a patient, and and then uh, probably midway through, we, we had enough rapport and, and, and enough pro- rapport with the patient that we could do this. Um, Beth would go after the patient uh, left, and she goes, did you notice that? I went, notice what? You know, how she responded when you asked her that question. And I went, no. Oh, okay. We get to the next patient. Did you notice that? I went, notice what? Well, when you asked that patient to do that, did you notice how they responded? I went, no. <laughs> Third time, did you notice that? And I'm going, like, okay, listen, lady, what in the world is going on here? So right. I, I, quickly, I quickly got the idea that I really wasn't paying attention to how people and what people were communicating. And – that it was like a giant door that opened up that says you're really not taking in the information in front of you in a way that allows you to be more to connect with it to to be more resourceful with it so 
it was a tremendous learning experience. And since that time, we uh, had developed an entire curriculum and, and taught a course around this concept of uh, strategic communications for clinical outcomes. You know, how is it specifically that we communicate? What exactly is communication? Um, what are the mechanisms? How does the brain work around it? And that led to um, a deeper, even deeper curiosity for me about, well, how does the brain work around this? And uh, how is it that, that we can train professionals, train colleagues, to do a better job of engaging with patients to improve outcomes. Now, you know, you have to step way up, but I've got you know a giant whiteboard with as many variables and conditions and narratives and stories that uh, begin to describe all of these things, how they relate. Because I'm gearing up to do a, a PhD dissertation on this because I thought, well, if I really wanted to know how this whole thing connects, I thought, uh, you know, where do you, where do you learn, how do you learn the neuroscience of communication? Well, you'd have to go to a profession that, that has been working with it for years, and, and psychology just made the most sense. So uh, I thought performance psychology would, would lend me probably a, the reason to do the deepest possible dive into how people perform and why. Um, so that they could they could um, uh, respond in a way that I could I'm sorry so that I could so that I could learn kind of what the science is, says about there so that I could do a better job of teaching it and communicating it so that's cool. how um, that's how you're, you're cool cool and you're you're kind of getting even going to another level though not just how or why, but how do I influence or how can one influence performance as well? Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then how do you, you know, how do you, um, what words can you say or how can you stand or what about the inflection of your voice matters? Um, I think all the listeners are, 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 are hearing pretty well that your words matter, right? We, the pain guys are, are really out there preaching this, and I, I would totally agree with that. <clears throat> the right, words say that this, do, don't say that, yeah. kind of stuff. Correct. You know, and back to back to what we the way we teach it is motivational language. You know, when you uh, mm. just kind of a kind of an example. You know, when you when when the first pa when the patient walks in the in, into the clinic for a follow up visit, what's one of the first questions that we ask? Yeah, how's your pain today? Oh, yeah. Pain. Sure. I, I, I never How's asked that. Okay. Oh, good. I'm glad because. Uh, <laughs> but some people, I mean, clinicians. Uh, sure. And our our EM our EMR software is designed to try to ask us that question. How's your pain today? And of course, right. that's what we have so to focus, focus on. So let's focus on. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Got it. And so a simple skill, you know, a simple thing to say. Well, geez, what progress have you noted since the last time you were here? Now, that's a very specific language, and if you study language and, and the meaning of it, let's break that down. What progress have you noted since the last time you were here? Now, what specifically does that um, suggest? Or back to focusing on the positive. Well, it presupposes that there's been some progress. <laughs> well, right. right, right, of course, it, it, yes. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's called presuppositional language. So oftentimes we can, at the right time, in the right way, <clears throat> in the right context of relationship and rapport, you know, I'm, I'm throwing out a, a quick skill, but it's like if you use the, a skill in the wrong context, you know, it doesn't work all that well. Um, so it's the ability to um, have a skill in the context. So that's an example of trying to move people towards a way of seeing their, their experience with you, for example, as a therapist, in a new way. Um, and often what, when, when people are de trying to determine the value, uh, I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but what patients are looking for now is this value proposition. And you, you do this. I mean, you've talked about this before. Sure. You know, what exactly, what exactly is the value proposition? And um, even a, a better question is um, how is the value structured compared to the cost? for a customer, for a patient nowadays, because we know that the costs for the patients are increasing. Mm -hmm. So if we have the costs increasing, how do we increase the value? And what do we presuppose actually is the value? And for therapists that think it's about how the quality of the shoulder mobilization, I'm going to say that that's not the major skill. It's important, and we have to be really good at treating shoulders. But we don't treat shoulders. We treat people. Right. And so at some point, we're going to have to shift our focus uh, really wholeheartedly with the right skills to connect with the patients in the right way to inspire a sense of value. Well, and I, I would encourage people to think about, particularly if we're talking about business owners, whether you're in physical therapy or you own a cafe or you know, construction business or what have you, when you're communicating with people, who is, who's your target customer and who, who's that person that you're ultimately, you know, passionate about serving and really mm -hmm. thinking about your communication style and questions and listening to that person and getting really, really good at that because that's going to be different for different groups of, of people, for different tar target customers, if you will. Um, yeah. You know, our, we, we don't yeah. all perceive and communicate things the same way, as you kind of alluded to earlier. You're bringing your cultural perspective, your history, your experiences, all that stuff with you to these interactions. Right, right. And with a patient, which is really unique, uh, I think, in, in as compared to many other engagements, like at a cafe, for example, What's different is that you have a really unique relationship. So the patient and the provider have a unique position in the dyad. It's called a dyad between the two. So you've got the, the patient who has a certain level of expectation, and you have the provider who has a specific role, and the expectation is pretty strong that I'm here and I need your help with something. Not only do I, do I need your expertise, but I'm suffering. So this is kind of the, the difference and this is, and I'm suffering from something, and I need to have a certain amount of vulnerability. I need to be able to bring that. Mm -hmm. And what 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 providers are often lacking is this ability to hear that, connect to that specifically, in the right way, with the right boundaries, mm -hmm. with the right skill sets, in order to to with that connection to begin to 
listen carefully about what the customer really wants. And and I would say that most often, not most often, I don't, I don't exactly know what the how it is out there, but my experience, um, people often miss it. And and you don't have to because a, a simple series of the right kinds of questions at the right time would give it to you. In other words, if you listen carefully to your patient, back to what uh, Beth taught me when I, she was following me around the clinic, if you listen carefully, you're not going to miss anything. And if you do miss something, you know how to make sure that you don't miss it. <laughs> you know, you know, you you know how to go back and find it. And if I can keep that connection, if I can keep that connection with that customer, I, I mean, they're going to come back because they see the value that I'm that finally somebody is really listening. So, well, anyway, the passion the passion stems from that's kind of a long, long drawn out story, but. The passion stems from a, a deep, deep curiosity on how people interact and how it is that uh, we can learn the specific skills in healthcare to um, get better outcomes. Well, and when you're talking about that listening and really asking the right questions, but then take, you know, focusing, listening to the person, you're communicating empathy and caring and that they're valued as an individual in that interaction. Yes, absolutely. And that's one component of it. Correct. Mhm. Mm oh, oh sure, mm -hmm. but it yep. but it's right, it's, it's it, it is only one component, but it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of foundational. It's it's got to be there. Um correct. Cool. So so what do you do with organizations and how do you bring these things to life in a in a company or or an organization? Yeah. It, it well, by kind of framing it this way, um, and we used to have this value that we drew the entire organization around. We had a kind of a mantra is that, you know, we can't help our, our customers create a uh, healing response until we make sure that we create a, a, an environment for healing for the organization. We can't create an environment for healing for our customer unless we also create an environment for healing in our culture. So we spend a great deal of time really building the processes that listen carefully to how things are going, what's working, and back to empathy, because you said it, as a fundamental construct for effective teams. How do we listen to each other? Um, this I frame this around this concept of a relationship-centered culture. So, um, when when we teach these specific skills and we put an, uh, an implementation or a training program in for a group of clinicians, we are putting in place what's called relationship-centered care. Now, there I think there are courses out there that might teach patient-centered care, but I think Sturdy, I think that's a that's a misnomer. I just don't think we can do patient-centered care. Um, and the reason is why, and, and I, I taught this at CSM a little over a year ago, is that, uh, is that we don't have, you know, imagine being in a relationship that's one-sided. You know, imagine that what's most important is that person in front of you, but, but what, about, what about me? I mean, 
What about me in the relationship? And if I have to focus on you only, how does that feel for me? And how much energy do I have to be able to meet all the obligations I have in the context of this engagement? So the first thing we do with an organization is we start to shift it, to take the, to take the weight off of this idea where it has to be all about the customer. And I have to say, you know, it, it's difficult to treat the customer unless we're not taking care of ourselves. And, and that's, that's boxed into a bunch of different ways. And, you know, everyone's been on the airplane where I said, you know, put the oxygen mask on you first. Keep the organization healthy, if you will. Learn how to do that. Ask the right questions of your culture. Measure the culture. And then from that, your, your automated, your automatic results are going to be robust because you're just going to do a better job of uh, naturally connecting with your customer. So, so we what, put in place if I, if, relationships and culture. Uh-huh. Can, I, can I just ask a kind of a clarifying question here? So if I understand sure. correctly, you're saying we take care of ourselves and each other and the culture in order to take care, take better care of the patient or the customer. Exactly. Is that okay? Yep, that's exactly it. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. No, and uh, and you know um, that's a that's a process of leadership development because leaders have to take the mantle and create that environment and what we found is that if we provide just a, a course without some engagement with leadership to follow up on the content of the course we we don't get the full effect and um, yeah so we we are it's called patient success systems because we're interested in the success of the patient, but to do that, we have to climb upstream. We have to say, well, what skills are we, are we lacking? What values and beliefs are we not aligned to? What identity have we adopted? And how do we get this in alignment to make sure that we're delivering effectively and efficiently uh, to the customer? And in healthcare, this is a giant issue. So are you suggesting that the leaders in an organization have to also show empathy and listen and practice these same skills with their teams? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, they don't have to, of course, right? This sounds like you've said this before. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an essential skill because at some level, if we're not modeling what uh, – well, everybody knows what it feels like to just – for someone to say, you know, tell you what to do or just do that. Right. Do yeah. as I say, not as you, I do. Yeah, I tell that to a patient. Hey, you need to do these 10 exercises. And they look at me and go, yeah, right. Sure, I'll get right, right. on that. Well, but particularly in an organization, when you're when we're talking about leadership, if yeah. you don't walk the walk, you've you've basically undermined your own credibility. Exactly. Right. You know, and I've ex experienced organizations where the core values and the behaviors and the expectations are out there for everybody below a certain level. But the the executive team doesn't really think that they have to abide by the same set of rules, and that to me that's well. I would like to hear your take on on how you would classify that and what you might do about it. Yeah, that's a good question. What I would do is we always climb to a higher level. What I mean by that, I when I work with uh, with a group or uh, an individual, it's always saying you know one of my most important questions the is what's important about doing it that way? You know, 
In other words, so for me to be able to inter, intervene or help a patient, for example, or for a client, I, I have to begin by understanding how that patient or that client sees the situation. Because I can't make assumptions that I know exactly how somebody sees it. So when, when I ask the question, if, for example, a leader who, who may not be very good at engaging with, uh, with uh, somebody, for example, or a report, or you know, one of the questions, you know, what, what's important about not communicating what your intent is? And oftentimes when we start with that kind of a question, we get a shot, we get a better chance at uncovering kind of a deeper meaning, a deeper limiting belief that, that holds the pattern or a value that's beholden that, that ultimately may not be in alignment with the, the professed values of the organization. Right. And so, so you know, I, I always, we always come at it from this, from a slightly different angle, in a way that's that is in specifically intended to deeply, truly understand without any judgment. Because, you know, the way people see the world, uh, we we never call it right and wrong. We always frame it: mm-hmm. is it working or is it not? Is it working or is it not? And and then we have a, a kind of a mantra: if what you're doing isn't working, let's do something else. But it also kind of invites a question, if, if what you're doing, uh, how do you know if what you're doing is working? You know, what are you paying attention to? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? I mean, how do I know if I'm in rapport with one of my patients? What am I paying well, I attention is, to? Uh, sure, and if you don't even see or notice that feedback, how do you know how that's going? And then, you know, th- yeah, and then there are mm-hmm. repercussions beyond that. Well, and this is also something I look at with metrics. There, there are uh-huh. folks out there, and, and I bought into this. This was one of my, you know, I, I, I made this error, I think, if you can call it that. Um, mm-hmm. But that we can manage the metrics. We look at the metrics, and that'll tell us what's going on, what we do. You know, they're an indicator, perhaps, of where to look next. And they might indicate whether or not a process is being followed, but by themselves, they're, you know, fairly limited. Right. So if it's not, but but that's also they they could be a lagging indicator of of the process I'm doing. So then we've got two questions, right? Is the process being followed and you know, the metrics mm-hmm. off? If it's not being followed, then mm-hmm. that might be why. If it's being followed and the metrics off, then is it, you know what about the process is not working? And then yes. we have a different exactly. set of decisions and stuff to to pursue. But cool. Mm-hmm. So how well, do you from, how do you measure uh, this? You uh, talked about a feedback of the culture part, uh-huh. and um, and I cut you off. I'm sorry. Measure it. No, that's right. How we do you measure, measure that? With a with a. Can you share process. with us a little bit? Of, okay, so well, and in the survey, mm-hmm. what are you what are you looking for? What are some of the key things that you're, well, you're trying to find out? What we out? do is we re- we reflect on the individual values of the company, and then based on those values, we we ask the right crest that we ask the questions that are going to elicit the responses and then and that's just going to get us some data points and i like what you said because you said well kpis and metrices it's a great starting point but it's only a starting point because we're what we have to do is determine meaning of it what are what do these data mean 
what does it mean if we have one guy having a cancellation rate of this, or if our organization month-on-month uh, month, all of a sudden uh, shoots up from this kind of a whatever it is to the next one? What does it mean? No, when we do any kind of a measurement process, we begin a pro we get we begin uh, a a an engagement process to dig deeper. So, when and I ask a simple question: To what degree uh, do you feel respected in working here? Well, if if somebody puts a uh, an a, uh, an eight, okay, well. I, I would have to follow up with what's called qualitative research because I asked a quantitative question, put a number to it, and I'd follow mm -hmm. up on that. And I'd say, well, you know, what specifically is happening that you marked it an eight and not a five? Well, that's going to get more information. And then on the other end, if someone mar marks a five, for example, I would say, oh, what would be happening differently? so that we could move the needle a little bit closer to a, a seven. Mm -hmm. And in that, you're because looking for patterns that you can address. Is that correct? I'm looking for themes across the organization. Yeah, okay. I'm looking for, I'm looking for what is the it that's happening. Correct. Right. And, right. And, that, what, and that's really the difference when I'm learning this because I have to. <laughs> and that's really the difference <laughs> between quantitative research and qualitative research. Qualitative is this process of, of trying, to, trying to develop a theme that would explain an observation. Because all we know is that our business metrics are reflecting this. Well, what can explain that? And if you don't know the status of your culture and, and the specific variables and the human, the human conditions that contribute to this outcome, you, you're, you're, you're shooting. You're just shooting blind. So from an organizational standpoint, we ask the questions first in a quantitative way. We'll come back and we'll do a qualitative assessment. We'll gather those data. We'll develop the themes. And from those, we'll create a strategic and operational plan around it. So this sounds a little bit like an assessment, a diagnosis, and then a treatment plan. It sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> in that order. Right. How about that? Because it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to start. Yeah, right. It doesn't make a lot of sense to start treating something unless you really kind of know the diagnosis. And and back to diagnoses, you know, the right diagnosis is the most important part. Treatment treatment's pretty easy. The diagnosis is often the difficult part. Where's the real pain? When uh, and when we climb into that, I mean, it's it's. Uh, it is so awesome. When I see that awesome, it's like I, we have just seen organizations uh, entirely turn around in, in, in the barriers that they thought they were, they were trying to fix with an intervention this way. It, it was not – you're treating the wrong problem. Mm -hmm. Right. So well, when and we that's, focus that's it on some, something else – yeah. Go, go ahead. Sorry. Well, when we focus it on something else, when the, real, the root cause, the real problem, when we, we shine the light on that, then things really started to move. Cool. So, so it, it's interesting to me how clear and logical that is for so many people on the clinical treatment side of things. I must have must figure out what's wrong before I start to intervene and, and have any kind of effective intervention or, or result. Um, 
however, on the I, I'm I'm continually struck by the it's not lack of discipline. It's just not how that doesn't translate from the clinical thought process into the business. How yeah. we don't follow the same structure and paradigm that gets us success in the in the, on the clinical side when we apply it in our business. Right. So you're you're basically asking people in some some sense, at least in this industry, to take those skills that they have from the clinical side and begin applying them to their business and I'm going to put words in your mouth but perhaps as if your business was one of your patients. Hmm. Yeah. I mean that that I'm trying it on right now and I think that's fairly accurate. But but the challenge that that could be um however it also presupposes a certain way of treating patients. You, you know what I'm saying? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. So so sometimes and I have to say and this is nothing disparaging, but oftentimes what we do with patients and I think this is a big mistake is we often jump to conclusions because we see a certain pattern. So we, we don't see a certain fully pattern that that conclusion. That is correct. That's what I'm getting at. And right. and I think what we do as business leaders and, and I, I like what you're saying, Sturdy, because I think it's a great it's kind of a great kind of a metaphor about this. But it, it it also presupposes that we're treating patients this way, which is the skill set that I'm trying to teach anyway. Is that mm-hmm. and I'll ask the question, did you notice that? Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. In the course I'll teach people, did you notice that? And they'll go, huh? Yeah, when I said this, did you see what happened? Oh, oh. So I would I would concur with exactly what you said when it, when people are treating people at a relationship-centered level. Got then it. you can use the exact same formula in your business, which is a relationship-centered culture and a relationship-centered business. Yeah, and just as, as almost an aside here, and, and you probably ex- – well, I'm sure you experienced this firsthand – with 150 employees, one of the things I'm fascinated about is this idea of a dyad. Um, when you add more and more people to your business, that you can add headcount, but the number of the dyads, the number of those communication lines and relationships, those those dual person relationships, goes mm-hmm. up expon- exponentially, and thus because, the complexity yeah. of your business does as well. And and that just begs the the need for some kind of structure mm-hmm. and process and skill set to manage that. Exactly. Implementing a system wide. This is how we relate to each other. Mm-hmm. In other words, because you back to it, we want to learn. And and I would say for uh, I, I I used this uh, another example uh, this morning. Same concept. And it's like in any any of you out there who have kids. Um, and my kids just finally uh, left the house. So if you have kids, especially when they're teenagers, you want them talking. You, you don't want to find out about something that's going on in some crazy way. You want them talking, which means you have to create an environment for them to talk. Mm-hmm. Because when people are talking and you listen, and 
you can, and rather than climb it into fix-it mode, and this is the real barrier to uh, also being a, a kind of a master level physical therapist, is we climb into being a fix-it mode. Rather than connecting with it first, mm. connecting with the emotion first, um, which is a totally separate skill set, but what the whole idea is that we want to know what's working, what's not, so that as a team, we can begin to get people rallied around solutions together that we're all climbing into together. No, excellent. Well, this is this has been really cool, John. I really, really appreciate you talking with with me today and sharing um, so much of your of your knowledge and insights here. This has been. Uh, I'm still. You can hear me kind of processing and thinking about this. Uh -huh. So I hope I hope it's uh, similar for anyone who listens listens along. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything else you would like to share before we kind of wind down? No, but uh, if if uh, no, it's been fun for me, Stuart. I mean, we I've enjoyed. Uh, we've had many conversations over the years, so it's fun to do it in this fashion. And I suppose, I mean, you could put it this way or think about it, but if some of your listeners had a specific question around this, it'd be, it might be fun to kind of double back around a specific topic about how a relationship-centered uh, fix on that. And, I'm, and I, I'm working on something very specific called feedback-informed communication strategies. So uh, that's a very specific uh, process that I think uh, listeners might find very helpful. But... Um, or they may have a unique case that we could we could circle back around and talk about. No, that would be great. So if anyone, if you listen to this and you do have a unique case, something that's a real challenge for you and you want to let John know or me know, um, be happy to explore that with you and see if we could maybe go through problem solve it in in a kind of a public uh, forum like this. That if you're if you're willing to, please please hit us up. Um, you can reach me over at sturdymckee.com. That's S-T-U-R-D-Y. MCKEE.com. All my contact information, including my cell phone, is there. You can get me on Facebook, Facebook groups. Um, but John is uh, can be reached at PatientSuccessSystems.com, or his email at John W at PatientSuccessSystems.com. Uh, I really, really appreciate your time, John. This has been really insightful and interesting, and a lot of fun um, as well for me. Very, very thought-provoking. Oh, great. Thanks well, so much for being here. Thank, thanks for the opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for listening.